Let me extend a very warm welcome to the third of our Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh for 2014 to 2015. I am Stuart Brown, Professor of Ecclesiastical History and Deputy Convener of the Gifford Lectureship Committee. And let me extend a special welcome to uh, Dr. Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister and a former Rector of this university. We're very pleased to have you with us this evening. Our Gifford lecturer is the distinguished scholar of legal and political theory, Professor Jeremy Waldron, university professor and professor of law at New York University School of Law. The theme of his Gifford lectures is One Another's Equals, the Basis of Human Equality. And we have had two splendid lectures on this theme, which have highlighted the vital importance of understanding the foundations of human equality and of preserving a sense of human worth, the equal worth, the equal dignity of all human beings, especially in a world characterized as Professor Waldron put it so well, by an explosive growth of inequality of economic condition. In his third lecture this evening, he will consider three seminal moral philosophers and their respective conceptions of the crucial property undermining basic equality, underpinning basic equality among humans. <laughs> The lecture this evening is being recorded and the video will shortly be available online on the Gifford website. Professor Waldron, could I now invite you to present the third of your Gifford lectures on looking for a range property, Hobbes, Kant, and Rawls. Thank you very much. Um, lovely to be back at the lectern. I have a, a cold, and if my voice gives out, we're going to be in trouble because this is an important um, lecture in the series. In um, the principle of basic equality, seems to assume that there must be some factual equality or factual similarity among us. So tonight's question is: What is that factual equality? In virtue of what are we humans basically one another's equals? That we are one another's equals is best regarded as a moral principle with implications for cost-benefit analysis. Everybody's to be counted the same. Nobody more than once. No double counting. For justice, everybody is to be taken into account in our theories and our application of theories of justice. It has implications for rights, for equal human rights, and it has implications, as I said yesterday, for democratic authority. So that we are one another's equals is best regarded as a moral principle or a cluster of moral principles. The question for tonight is, in virtue of what features of our humanity does that, do those principles hold? Now that makes it sound as though we're asking uh, a question that requires moral cognition, moral insight, into basic equality. 
I said on uh, Monday that some people say, look, we just decide to treat a class of beings as equals. We just decide to hold one another to be equal. But as I said on Monday, even if that's so, still we have to ask what features should we understand as delimiting the class of beings uh, for whom this decision or this stance or this um, commitment is appropriate? What characteristics of the individuals we are looking at make sense of our decision, make sense of our commitment? Either way, we are looking for similarities. We're looking for properties that humans have. My old friend John Locke, writing in his second treatise of government in the 1680s, thought that there was nothing more evident than that creatures of the same species and rank, promiscuously born to the same advantages of nature and to the use of the same faculties, should also be equal one amongst another without subordination or subjection. Okay, which faculties? Which advantages of nature? That's what we have to ask. In the first two lectures, you'll remember I said that statements about basic equality may be of two kinds. Number one, distinctive equality, based on our equal possession of some attribute that distinguishes humans from the animals and assigns all humans to the same high worth and high dignity. Or a more modest position, continuous equality, which maintains simply that there are no discontinuities in the range of humanity that would make some humans less equal than others, but leaving open the question of whether humans are in fact raised above all other creatures. So on the one hand, we have the modest position, no discontinuities. On the other hand, we have the more aggressive uh, position that we are, we are in fact raised above the animals, and we want to know why that's so. Actually, strictly speaking, the more modest position doesn't require us to identify a property that all humans share because it's a negative position. It says there's no special property that some humans have that other ones don't. But as I said on Tuesday, in light of the difficulty of proving a negative, it's likely that those who believe in continuous equality do also base their belief on some properties that humans in fact share, some property whose importance justifies their confidence that we will not find any other basis for substantial discontinuity. Some property, uh, some certainty, some confidence that any other alleged discontinuity will be eclipsed by the property that they're focusing on. So really I'm assuming that both these positions, for one reason or another, are going to be seeking to, um, in this quest, for a property or characteristic or capacity that is the basis of human equality. So what's it going to be? I've listed a whole range of possibilities on the uh, prayer sheet um, for this evening. There's two sides tonight, which means it's an indication of how much work we have to do. <clears throat> if, if we were happy to be blatant speciesists, I suppose we would say we we're happy to be human chauvinists, I suppose we could just assert barefacedly that the key property on which human equality supervenes is human DNA, the human species. We might start with that, but it's unsatisfactory even, even as a starting point, for it does little or nothing to make the equality position intelligible, which, as I said, was an important aspect of supervenience. It doesn't seem to give us a reason 
for holding the beings to be equal. And especially for the, for the distinctive equality position, it is, of course, just question-begging once the issue of our relation with non-human animals has been opened up. And thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, even if we did take human DNA seriously, human DNA is important not because of what it is, but because of what it's for. Human, human DNA, the human genome, is important not because it is of, of what it is, but because of what it's for. It's infrastructural. It underlies other capacity. It makes other capacities possible. And we want to understand which aspects of DNA in terms of which properties and capacities that genetic heritage um, uh, mobilizes and makes possible. So the DNA position is not going to be a very um, helpful starting point. It's either question-begging, unhelpful, or leaves open this issue of um, what it grounds. There was a philosopher called Bernard Williams, great man, um, and in a great essay called The Idea of Equality, published in 1962, one of the few essays to actually address the topic of these lectures. Bernard dwelt on the sheer fact of our humanity, our belonging to the species. He acknowledged, first of all, that it doesn't seem to be a very promising beginning, just to remind us that all humans are human. But then he continued, that all men are human is, if a tautology, a useful one, serving as a reminder that those who belong anatomically to the species Homo sapiens and can speak a language, and use tools, and live in societies, can interbreed despite racial differences, and so on, are also alike in certain other respects more likely to be forgotten. These respects are notably the capacity to feel pain, both from immediate physical causes and from various situations represented in perception and in thought, and the capacity to feel affection for others and the consequences of this connected with the frustration of this affection, loss of its objects, etc. Capacity to feel pain, capacity to feel affection for others. The assertion that men are alike in the possession of these characteristics, he says, is, while indisputable, not trivial, for it's certain that there are political and social arrangements that neglect moral claims that arise from these characteristics. I think in 1962 he may well have been... Uh, having uh, South African apartheid uh, in mind, particularly with regard to the second of those characteristics. It's not clear whether these establish only a basis for continuous equality or whether they establish uh, the more aggressive position of distinctive equality. At first sight, the first point that uh, Williams mentions, the capacity to feel pain, seems to be the basis for a principle of continuous equality. All humans have it, but then so do many of the higher animals have the capacity to feel pain. Jeremy Bentham, the great 18th century utilitarian, is famous for saying that this is, this is a, a, a key property and something we share with the animals. He said, what, what could be more important than the fact that we can feel pain? What else is it, he said, that should trace the insuperable line? Is it the faculty of reason or perhaps the faculty of discourse but a full-grown horse or dog is beyond comparison a more rational as well as a more conversable, conversable animal than an infant of a day or a week or even a month old. This is Bentham, and that's something we'll come back to in Lecture 6. <clears throat> no, says Bentham, the question is not can they reason. The question is not can they talk, but can they suffer? Yeah. 
And since all humans can suffer, then in that sense, humans are equal, particularly in relation to political arrangements that have the power to cause such suffering, cause and distribute such suffering. Having said this, however, we should notice that elsewhere in his writings, Bentham emphasizes the fact that man is not like the animals, limited to the present, but susceptible of pains and pleasures by anticipation. And this seems to take us into the distinctively human range, something that Williams is implicitly referring to as well. So there's a bit of ambiguity here. If you go to Williams's other criterion, the capacity for affection, you might find a, a, a similar range of possibilities. Animals have affection uh, for other animals and for humans, as Will Kimlicker has pointed out recently. Um, but the closer, the further you take the capacity for affection in the direction of the capacity for love, maybe the more distinctively human this becomes. I wouldn't want to press this too hard, but it's certainly a property that all humans have, which might be significant as a basis for equality, the capacity for love. It includes not just share affection and desire, but the capacity to recognize and identify with another person, to involve oneself existentially in the way things are and how things go for the other person, and to both lose and find oneself in such a relationship. That massively important feature of our lives we may think is part of the infrastructure, part of what makes sense of the claim that in the more important things of lives, of life, we are one another's equals. Some Christian thinkers have pursued a theory of this kind, suggesting that humans are equals because they equally have the capacity to love one another. They suggest that God, having loved us, has touched us with the ability to love one another. If God is, in a sense, love, then maybe our loving, our capacity for love, may be our bearing the image of God. It's one of the many uses to which that notion of the image of God is sometimes put. But an emphasis on the human capacity for love and affection need not be religiously tinged. It's not religiously tinged in Bernard Williams's um, account. It may be cited simply as an important fact about us, one that's bound to strike anybody as important, whether God has told us to notice it or not. It's an important fact about us that grounds our special worth and the special significance of our lives, and that it's important to bear in mind that ignoring it would be an insult to the dignity of the human species. <coughs> well, you have this idea of the capacity for pain, the capacity for love, the capacity most commonly cited in our tradition as the basis of human worth and human dignity is reason. Cicero, in his book, concerning the laws, De Legibus, remarked that this animal, provident, perceptive, versatile, sharp, capable of memory and filled with reasons and judgment, which we call a human being, was endowed by the supreme God with the grand status at the time of its creation. It alone, of all types and varieties of animate creatures, has a share in reason and thought, which all the others lack, says Cicero. What is there, not just in humans, but in all heaven and earth, more divine than reason? What is there in all the heavens and all the earth more divine than reason? 
and there's a, a long tradition, as uh, many of you will know better than I, in Roman thought to identify reason uh, with a proto-monotheistic conception of the polytheistic gods. You find the same in the Stoics. You find it in the early Christian thinkers and Aquinas and Augustine and all the way through to the modern era. The Stoics are particularly interesting. Cicero's position in the position of Stoics like Epictetus is not just a matter of noticing that humans happen to have been endowed with rationality, you know, that God has simply favored us by giving us this capacity. Rationality is ours for a reason. There's a point to our rationality on their account. It makes possible a community of sorts with God or with the gods. Since there is nothing better than reason, says Cicero, and it is found both in humans and in gods, reason forms the first bond between the humans and the gods. And I think in the Christian idea, when reason is identified as part of the image of God, again, it's not just a happy endowment. It's an endowment with a point to make possible fellowship between humans and God, fellowship that is ruptured at the time of the fall. The Stoics are well known for envisaging a broad polity consisting of all humans, a cosmopolitan vision. I am not an Athenian or a Corinthian, but a citizen of the world, they would say. That aspect of Stoic teaching is well known, but less well known, however, is their insistence that this cosmopolis, this cosmopolitan community, binds together gods and men. As Epictetus put it, each human being is primarily a citizen of his own commonwealth, but he is also a member of the great city of gods and men, whereof the city political is only a copy. It's very, very interesting if you, if you just push beyond this one step. One step is saying humans are endowed with reason and that's what makes them significant. But the significance is enhanced when you say humans are endowed with reason for a particular purpose. And for that, I think you do need the religious the religious tradition. <coughs> I said this runs all the way through to early modern thought, and on the, the, the handout I've given you a quotation from John Locke's um, work on this. When I wrote a book called God, Locke, and Equality, Christian Foundations in John Locke's Political Thought, I argued that a deep and careful reading of Locke revealed that he too thought the appropriate faculty for our equality was our reason. And he actually used the image of God idea just once in uh, the first treatise, which nobody ever reads. Um, he said, God made Adam in his own image after his own likeness, makes him an intellectual creature, for wherein soever the image of God consisted, the intellectual nature was certainly a part of it and belonged to the whole species. If we had unlimited time and we don't, I would pursue the theme of what Locke is doing with that passage, which is maintaining that this heritage of reason is an attribute of Eve as well. It didn't just belong to Adam, it belonged to the whole species, to every human. God made them in his image. And I believe some of the same ideas about a possible fellowship with God on the basis of this intellectual nature are present in this account. All right. Rationality is a very broad idea. It covers a variety of virtues and, as we will see, a variety of sins. 
Some of the philosophers interested in equality are interested in more specific rational capacities under this heading. John Locke, for example, had a specific interest in his ethical writings. He thought the rational attribute that was most important was our ability for abstraction, for abstract reasoning. Because he believed, something that we don't believe, he believed that the capacity of abstract reasoning was necessary to figure out that God exists and largely sufficient for figuring out that God exists. And a being that can become aware of its maker has obviously a special significance in the eyes of that maker. So Locke was interested in the modicum of rationality that's needed for that uh, apprehension of the divine. Other more secular accounts have suggested that human language and the human relationality that that makes possible is the key facet of um, rationality. But the one I want to spend just a little bit of time with is, is uh, Thomas Hobbes, writing in the middle of the 17th century with a very, very bleak vision of humankind. Hobbes was a great believer in human equality. After the first lecture, somebody raised the question of Aristotle and Aristotle's belief that there were natural slaves and that there was great discontinuity between men and women. Hobbes would have none of that. He hated Aristotle. He hated Oxford because it taught Aristotle. He, hated, he, he said that what was taught there was not philosophy but Aristotelity. He, he, he thought that the, the thing that most weakened a commonwealth was excessive study of the Greeks and Romans. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> Hobbes emphasized a more chilling characteristic of our rationality. He thought the characteristic we shared in common was not our capacity to love or to speak, but our equal capacity to kill. Nature, he said, hath made men so equal in the faculties of body and mind as that though there be found one man sometimes manifestly stronger in body or quicker mind than another, yet when everything is reckoned together, the difference between man and man is not so considerable as that one man can thereupon claim to himself any benefit to which another man may not pretend as well as he. For as to strength of body, the weakest has strength enough to kill the strongest. The weakest has strength enough to kill the strongest. And he says that was in Leviathan. He said a little bit more about this in De Sive concerning the citizen, where he invited us to consider how brittle the frame of the human body is, how easily killable our bodies are, how easy a matter it is even for the weakest man to kill the strongest, saying that we should infer from this that there's no reason why any man trusting to his own strength should conceive of himself made by nature above others. They are equal, said Hobbes, who can do equal things to one another. And killing is the most important thing that one person can do to another. So those who have equal homicidal capacity are one another's equals by nature. Now, <clears throat> I guess the first thing about this account is that it's intended to refute any Rashdalian implication of discontinuity within the human range. It has immediate consequences for the alleged inequality between the sexes, Hobbes says. Some people have attributed the dominion, the dominion to men only as being of the more excellent sex, but they misreckon it, said Hobbes for there is not always that difference of strength or prudence between man and woman as that the right can be determined without war. 
Any woman can kill any man. Yeah. So you would be wise not to go around acting as though men and women were not one another's equals. It's not necessarily an affirmative account of what distinguishes us from the animals, but it is an account of continuous human, human equality. Um, and it sounds like a brutal account, but in fact it's supposed to motivate a concern for peace. That is the aim of Hobbesian politics. And in his account of natural law, there's a prescriptive, prescriptive aspect to equality, amounting almost to a principle of mutual respect. Hobbes says, the question who is the better man has no place in the condition of nature where all men are equal. And therefore, for the ninth law of nature, he had about 17, for the ninth law of nature, I put this, that every man acknowledge another for his equal. That every man acknowledge another person for his equal. No one, no one's to go strutting around saying, I am born superior to you. It's a condemnation, he says, of pride. Well, that's Hobbes. We are equally one another's potential killers. However, the range properties most commonly invoked in discussions of basic equality refer not to homicidal capacity, but to something quite different, to our individual powers of moral reasoning. Yeah? Maybe still under the auspices of reason, but now we're looking not just at theoretical reasoning, not linguistic reasoning, not homicidal reasoning, but moral reasoning. And this brings us face to face with the enormous influence of the second name in my list, Immanuel Kant, in modern discussions of equality. Kant emphasized the common human capacity to grasp and respond to the moral law, even when this had to be done in defiance of material satisfaction and material desire and inclinations. Humans have the ability to respond to moral reasons, even when those reasons are not advantageous for them. He thought it was a breathtaking capacity. Momentous. Here's what he said in the Metaphysics of Morals. <coughs> Man in the system of nature is a being of little significance and along with other animals has an ordinary value. But man as a person, that is, as the subject of a morally practical reason, is exalted above all price. He is not to be valued merely as a means to the ends of other people, but is to be prized as an end in himself, this is to say he possesses a dignity, an absolute inner worth, whereby he exacts the respect of all other rational beings in the world, whereby he can measure himself against each member of his species and can esteem himself on a footing of equality with them. I think you'll agree that's the sort of doctrine I'm looking for. Yeah? That there's something about our ability to reason morally, to reason about the relationship between our interests and those of others, to reason about whether to keep faith, keep promises, to be benevolent from principle and so on. These are, these are, he thought, massively important. The power we have in this regard is momentous, said Kant. There's a great, wonderful passage in Kant's second critique where he begins, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The starry heavens above and the moral law within. The astronomical perspective annihilates, he said, as it were, my importance as an animal creature. 
but my moral self-awareness, what I see when I look into my soul and my capacity for moral judgment and moral action, that infinitely raises my worth as an intelligence as I become aware of a depth of my being that is simply not given by my biology. And you all know the passage, I hope you all know the passage on human dignity in the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals, which is not the same as the metaphysics of morals, written much earlier, where he said, um, morality is the condition under which alone a rational being can be an end in himself. Morality, and humanity, inasmuch as humanity is capable of morality, is that which alone has dignity. Skill, diligence at labor have market values. Lively imagination and humor have a fancy value. But fidelity to promises, benevolence from principle have an intrinsic worth. Neither nature nor art contains anything which in default of these it could put in their place. These are non-fungible, irreplaceable, incommensurable uh, assets. The worth of such a moral disposition is dignity and places it infinitely above all value with which it cannot for a moment be brought into comparison or competition without violating its sanctity. All of this makes me realize, says Kant, that I am a very special sort of being, embodied and material, no doubt, subject to temptation and selfish inclination, no doubt, but capable of defying the demands of the body, capable of defying the urgings of material desire for the sake of conformity in principle to the moral law. I don't think there's any doubt that Kant intends this as a basis of a distinctive account of human equality, differentiating us sharply from the animals, but equalizing us sharply among one another. No human being, he said, is entirely without moral feeling, for were he completely lacking in it, then humanity would dissolve into mere animality and be mixed irretrievably with the mass of other animals. It's partly that we can reason morally, but just, just to, to re-emphasize, it's also that we have a will that's capable of acting morally. We can find out what the right thing is to do, and we, we don't always do it, but we, we know we are capable of doing it. We know that it is possible for this human to act rightly, even if nine times out of ten he does not. And knowing that we have that capacity is knowing something momentous, momentous uh, about us. <coughs> Hobbes made fun of Aristotle for valuing wisdom, superior wisdom, as a basis for inequality. He said that's just the sort of thing you'd expect from a philosopher. And we might say that Kant's theory is just the sort of thing you'd expect from a moral philosopher. Right? To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And to Kant, it looks as though moral judgment, that part of our lives, is the be-all and end-all of human equality. But maybe this is too one-sided, all about principle, all about duty, all about morality. What about the times when we're off duty, when we're just living our lives, just responding to ordinary reasons, not the starry heavens above or the nagging voice of the categorical imperative? What about just living our lives? We sometimes distinguish between moral autonomy, which is partly what Kant's talking about, and personal autonomy. A person just living their lives, 
being in control of their lives, reflecting on how things are going, working out what they want to do with their lives and so on. And I think it would be a pity to sell that short in comparison with the Kantian business about the moral law within us. Talk of personal autonomy evokes the image of a person in charge of his life, authoring his life, not just following desires, but choosing which of his desires to follow, not just for moral reasons, but just because of the sort of person they want to be. Everybody has a view of his or her life from the inside, and everyone regards his or her life as something to build and something to make sense of for him or herself. And that itself is a precious attribute that seems to be an important element of human equality. Because when we are dealing with other people, we are dealing with other people who have and who are exercising that capacity. There's a mistake on the handout. Um, under heading G, we're still under heading number one, but under heading G, about two-thirds of the way down, where it says personal autonomy, I quote Colonel Rainborough from the Putney debates uh, among Cromwell's army, members of Cromwell's army. Uh, in 1649, I say it, it's a mistake, it's 1647. But in arguing for a position that turned out to be hopeless, in arguing for universal manhood suffrage, Colonel Rainborough made a very famous saying which you can now see inscribed on the wall of St. Mary's Church in Putney where these debates took place. Where he said, really, I think that the poorest he that is in England has a life to lead as the greatest he. The poorest he that is in England has a life to live as the greatest he. The greatest he may give some quasi-aesthetic consideration to his life. Think about collections and heritage and so on. The poorest person has a life to live as well. They have a sense that this life is theirs and they want to live it. And it may well be thought that we need this as a, more, as a less severe counterpoint to the rather stern strictures of Kantian um, moral capacity. Apart from Colonel Rainborough, I suppose we could say that the great avatar of personal autonomy is John Stuart Mill. Remember Mill writing in On Liberty, who said, he who lets the world choose his life for him has no other need of any other faculty than the ape-like faculty of imitation. He who chooses his own plan of life for himself employs all his faculties. He must use observation to see, reasoning and judgment to foresee, activity to gather materials for decision, discrimination to decide, firmness and self-control to hold to his deliberate decision. I'm going to pursue this way of life. I'm going to pursue these relationships. I'm going to live in this town or this town or this town or move. We make these decisions for ourselves. We forge a distinctive life for ourselves because we realize as John Stuart Mill put it, that human nature is not a machine to be built after a model, but a tree that needs to grow in all its branches according to the inner forces that um, determine a person's view of their own life. So we could emphasize these, these um, sayings about the importance of personal autonomy. Oddly enough, and this is much more information than you need, old Immanuel Kant was persuaded by this too. Sometimes he relaxed the rigor of his moral account 
and said, look, nobody can force me to be happy in accordance with his conception of happiness. No government can force me to be happy according to its conception of happiness, and no person can either. Each person must find his own... It doesn't sound like Kant, but it is Kant, writing in a famous essay called Theory and Practice in 1783. So, in a way, Kant complemented the account of the importance of our responsiveness to moral duty with the importance of our living a life of our own. And that complementarity between something ordinary and something deep and awe-stricken metaphysical, I think has carried forward into, into modern liberalism as well. So we come to the third thinker on the list here, John Rawls. I'm assuming, I mean, I've tried to ex explain who everybody is. I'm assuming we know John Rawls, great political philosopher at Harvard, until his death about 10 or so years ago, um, author of a book that rejuvenated political philosophy called A Theory of Justice. And it's his book, A Theory of Justice, that I'll be focusing on. Rawls was a Kantian. He believed this was a good heritage to work in. He was an egalitarian, both at the surface level and at the deep level. At the surface level, we have his difference principle, his principle of equal opportunity, his principle that requires attention to the situation of the worst off in society. We have his principle of equal basic liberties, and we have the equality implicit in his social contract, theorizing. All of that indicates that Rawls is firmly in the egalitarian camp. These are all equalizing principles, and they point us also to a very deep commitment to equality in the foundations of Rawls's work. Because for those who persevere to the end of Rawls's book, and I don't suggest that you should, you go mad, but if, if somehow, by mistake even, you make it to page 504, well beyond what any philosopher has read, you'll find a massively important passage for our purposes, section 77, entitled the basis of equality. It's exactly what we're talking about, the basis of equality. It's not widely read, but in it Rawls asks, what sort of beings are owed the guarantees of justice? What sort of beings are owed the guarantees of justice? What sort of beings is justice for? The natural answer, he says, is that it is precisely moral persons who are entitled to equal justice. Moral persons are distinguished by two features, First, they are capable of having a conception of their own good. And second, they are capable of having a sense of justice, a uh, desire to apply and act upon principles of justice, at least to a certain minimal degree. That same dual character, their ability to respond to moral reasons, their sense of justice, their sense of fairness, and their own sense of their own good, their own sense of what they're doing with their lives. And the idea that these are matched together, complementing and disciplining one another. He thought that's crucial for identifying the beings, the individuals, the entities that justice is all about, the beings who are bound by justice, the beings who are to be benefited by justice. In a very early article in 1963, he only had the moralistic element, but sometime between 1963 and 1971, like Kant, he added the element of personal autonomy as well as moral autonomy as well. 
And for Rawls, this is very clearly a way of thinking about distinctive equality because he's trying to explain in this long passage why we do not owe obligations of justice to animals, to non-human animals. We owe obligations of justice only to beings that have a sense of their own good and beings that have a sense of justice and therefore can give as well as receive, as, as receive justice. It's a tendentious position. A lot of animal rights people are very angry with them. And as we will see next Thursday, a lot of disability rights advocates think that emphasizing these capacities, actually emphasizing any of the capacities we've been talking about this evening, might be prejudicial to the claims of disabled humans. Say it again. Yes, yes. So it's very, very important that that be addressed. Um, what Rawls is saying is we have to figure out the basis of human equality first and then figure out um, as thoughtfully as we can the relation of the most disabled people to the range of human equality that we've established. He does it rather dismissively in his book, and I am trying to keep faith with a broader vision that sees this question as being postponed rather than brushed aside, but I think it's very, very, uh, very important. And um, as I said, I'll come back to this in uh, lecture six. Well, there you have it, an array of possibilities for the features of human beings on which directly or indirectly their basic equality, their dignity, their worth might supervene. They're not the only possibilities. There are lots of others I could mention. Free will is one our world-making capacity to choose which way the world will go. Yeah? The world either contains the event of Waldron having a glass of water at 14 minutes past six, or it doesn't contain that event. And I choose which of these actual worlds is true, and I hereby... Yeah, and on more momentous questions, our free will, our world-making capacity, our world-choosing capacity, Obviously, that's a possibility. Hannah Arendt's theme of natality is another, and there are many others. These are all, or almost all, capabilities, which is partly why this issue of disability uh, is immediately raised. Many of them are complex. There's nothing simple about moral capacity, nothing simple about personal autonomy or reasoning. And it's perfectly possible that these are interrelated and that we don't have to choose among them. Those themes, complexity, interrelationship, I'll pursue at the beginning of Monday's lecture. But I'm sure you are waiting for me to say something about the most important feature of these candidate capacities, these candidate properties that I brought forward. I'm sure you're waiting for me to say something about what is, for egalitarian purposes, the most troubling feature of the capacities that I, ha that I have cited as the basis of human equality that these are all properties or capacities that humans appear to possess in different degrees. These are all properties or capacities that humans seem to possess in equal degrees. We emphasize the common capacity to feel affection, but people can feel affection in different ways and to different degrees, and some are hardly capable of love at all. We emphasize reason, but we know that there are differences, unequal degrees of intelligence and insight. We emphasize moral qualities, 
but people are notoriously unequal in their moralizing and in their adeptness with values and principles, not, not to mention the uneven quality of their own moral lives. We emphasize personal autonomy, but some people stumble from one decision to another, whereas others lay out the vista of a whole life. These are differences of degree, and as long as those differences of degree stand, we're entitled to ask, how can human equality be predicated on that basis? I'm sorry? Yes, indeed. We bring on ourselves to skills of various sorts with education. Exactly right. So we have to respond to this challenge. And I'm going to respond to it with this phrase that you may have wondered what it's doing up there, the idea of a range, a range property. There are some people, Joshua Berman is the author of a remarkably good book called Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, published in 2008. And he says this problem of differences of degree this problem of differences of degree is bound to crop up whenever we are relying on empirical or natural attributes. Yeah? So maybe we should be looking for some metaphysical element like a soul to be the basis, to be the basis of um, our equality. But the fact is that metaphysical elements, metaphysical capacities, metaphysical properties, many of them can be possessed in different degrees as well. If I say we are all created in the image of God, I can't deny that sometimes the image is more blurred in some people than it is in others. Yeah? Kant's moral capacity, he thought it was so momentous, it had to tell something about our non-empirical character, our noumenal, transcendent character. But still the Kantian moral capacity seems to be a difference of degree as well. I mean, I have nothing against religious accounts of equality, as you know, but I think we shouldn't just scramble to them because we don't want to face up with this issue of different degrees, different degrees of education, different degrees of, of skill. Some people say, well, look, we don't need precision here. We don't need precise similarity. All we need is broad similarity. Yeah? But we can't quite say that. If we believe in the importance of moral capacities, we believe that it's massively important that people get morality right rather than wrong. If we believe the sense of justice is something that distinguishes all human beings, then we've got to take seriously the fact that, people, that uh, some people hold um, ferociously libertarian senses of justice and some people hold compassionate um, senses of justice and one of those may be right and the others may be wrong. It's true that we're not looking for any simple Aristotelian proportionality here. But I don't think the differences of degree can just be dismissed. Let me explain what I mean by range property. We now are turning over to the second page of the, of the handout. In the section 77 of his book, A Theory of Justice, Rawls proposes an idea for dealing with the differences of degree that might seem to contradict or erode our claims about basic equality. We've seen that Rawls organizes basic equality around features of moral personality, but he too has to face up to the problem we've been considering. 
It may be objected, he says, that equality cannot rest on natural attributes because there is no natural feature with respect to which all humans are equal, that is, which everyone has to the same degree. That's a problem, and here's his response. It is not the case, says Rawls, that founding equality on natural capacities is incompatible with an egalitarian view. All we have to do is select a range property, as I shall say, which means he's inventing the term, a range property, and to give equal justice to those meeting its conditions. For example, this is one of those examples that's completely unhelpful. For example, the property of being in the interior of the unit circle is a range property of points in the plane. All points inside the circle have this property, although their coordinates vary within a certain range, and they equally have this property, they equally have this property, since no point interior to a circle is more or less interior to it than any other interior point. Now, actually, he's using some fancy math here, uh, the property of being in the interior of the unit circle. When I tried to figure this out, I did a full search on JSTOR to try to figure it. I got 20 references on JSTOR to the Rawls idea, no one of which tried to explain it. And I got about 70 references to articles with titles like Super Logarithmic Estimates on Pseudo-Convex Domains and Derivations on Algebras of Unbounded Operators. And they were all using the, the idea range property as though everybody understood it. When I looked up range property on Google, I got a whole lot of stuff about mountain real estate. You know. <laughs> home, home on the range. Um, but I believe we can simplify, and I've given you an idiot diagram at the top of the page there in the middle. Rawls's idea involves a relationship between two associated properties. Let's call one R, the range property, a little bit of algebra, R, the range property, and S, a scalar property, admitting of differences of degree. We say that R is a range property with respect to S. If R is binary, that means one either has it or one doesn't. And there's a scalar property, yes, such that R applies to individual items in virtue of their being within a certain range on the scale connoted by S. In the simplest cases, it's like a threshold, right? If you're over the threshold, you qualify for the property R, but the threshold is defined on the scale S. So if it, that, it, that works for a one-dimensional case, the range may have an upper limit or well, or maybe configured in a more complicated way in a two-dimensional model. So consider my example of Scotland here. Yeah? This is when I thought you were going to be a, a separate nation again. Um, consider the characteristic which a town might have of being in Scotland as opposed to being in England. There is a right, <coughs> I mean being in Scotland is a matter of law and jurisdiction. Now law and jurisdiction are organized geographically and geography admits of differences and coordinates. Geographically, Stirling, I think, is more or less in the center of Scotland, well into the country. Whereas the, um, the little village of Gretna Green is just notoriously just over the line from England. But jurisdictionally, Gretna and Stirling are both in Scotland to the same extent, right? even though there is this geographical difference between them, and even though the realm is defined geographically, from a legal point of view and from a jurisdictional point of view, they are equally in Scotland. And the question is whether we can use that model 
of a range property like being in Scotland to supersede this concern about scalar differences, geography in this case, differences of intelligence and moral capacity in the other case. Rawls thinks this is an obvious thing to use, but it hasn't been much discussed either before or since the publication of A Theory of Justice in 1971. And that's partly because philosophers tend to be too glib about this. They, they, they get hold of the term range property, and we know how to define a range property. I've given you a crude definition there on the, um, the left-hand side of the sheet. But the most important thing is to motivate the range property, to explain why we are interested in the range property rather than in the scalar differences of degree. In the Sterling-Gretner case, our interest is jurisdictional. We want to organize things jurisdictionally, and from that point of view, we say, we, we rivet our attention on the fact that these are both Scottish towns. Yeah? So the jurisdiction is doing the work. And for Hobbes, you can see that the interest in not being killed is doing the work. Hobbes says there's a kind of a threshold where a, an animal becomes a non-inconsiderable threat to my life. And if anything is over that threshold, I've got to deal very carefully with it. For Hobbes, that's the basis of equality. And we know that the driving force behind that is the, the sense of, um, is the sense of um, vulnerability, the brittleness of human life, and the apprehension that I may be killed. So in the Hobbes case and in the Sterling-Gretner case, we can see the motivation that is driving our attention to be on the, the range property rather than the associated scalar property. The hard thing to do is to see how that goes with some of the other features like rationality or moral sense. But um, you can begin to see how this, how this works. Um, on Rawls's account, he says, well, the relevant range property is just the capacity for moral personality. It's not at all stringent. It's just an essential minimum. Once you have the capacity for some moral thought and for some thought about the shape of your own life, you get over the threshold, you're in the class of those to whom duties of justice are owed. He's still not telling us a whole lot about why that's the appropriate perspective rather than the perspective that would pay attention to the differences in moral degree. Kant, Immanuel Kant, is a little bit more forthcoming. It's very clear, he makes it very clear that he views human moral capacities as range properties, applying more or less across the whole human realm. He says, to satisfy the categorical command of morality is within everyone's power at all times. And it covers not just his own elite moral capacity, but also the unsophisticated scruples of the ordinary man, the uneasy conscience of the boldest evildoer who knows he need not have acted wrongly, but did. Even a child of around eight or nine years old who will undoubtedly answer in the negative if asked whether it's all right to appropriate to his own use money with which he has been entrusted. The child will say, no, of course it's not all right. I may do it, but it's not all right. Yeah. Beings reveal themselves to have these moral capacities, even though they cannot necessarily put them into words or articulate them in the language that Kant would articulate them in. This capacity ranges over the good and the bad, the self-aware and the self-deluded, 
the scrupulous and the unscrupulous, the ethically learned and the ethically illiterate. Of course, people's moral achievements vary enormously. Some people act badly, some of you act well. Yeah? And those differences, those differences on the S scale, the scalar scale, of course, do matter enormously. They matter to Kant and they matter to us. As moral beings, we have to regard these inequalities as important. Kant says, before a humble common man in whom I perceive virtue and uprightness of character in a higher degree than I am aware of it in myself, before that humble common man, my spirit bows, whether I want it or whether I don't. But being aware of that deference that I give to the good man is also being aware of something that exists within me because the good man holds out an example and says, Waldron, you could have been capable of this too had you used the capacities that you share with that good man. And Kant wants to say that at least for some purposes, and egalitarian purposes are not the only purposes we have, at least for some purposes, at least for some purposes, a riveting focus on the bare possession of the capacity, irrespective of how it's used, is the key to thinking about, is the key to thinking about human dignity. Well, I'm going to talk much more about this. Uh, there's much more to say um, in, in um, Monday's lecture. I'll try to map some of it onto the stuff about autonomy and rationality as well. And I'll have to talk, I was going to talk about it today, you'll see it at the bottom of the sheet, some questions about how we delineate and how we specify the range of these range properties. But I'll talk about that on Monday as well. There's much more to say about this. There's much more to say about a, a facet that I will call the sparkle of these range properties. That is, whenever we focus on these range properties, of course we're also interested in how they have been exercised. Of course, we're also interested in the extent to which people have them and display them. But our interest goes back and forth. It scintillates or sparkles back and forth between simply being bowled over by the realization of the sort of beings that we are dealing with that are capable, in principle, of this stuff, and being, of course, intensely interested in how exactly they're exercised. Yeah? I talked about beings capable of affection. We are bowled over by the fact that humans are capable of love. But then around the dinner table, we're intensely interested in who loves who. Yeah? And our interest sparkles back and forth. And that is what we should expect, I think, of properties that are serving as a grounding for, for human equality. So I'm going to leave it there for tonight. I've tried your patience. It's just after half past six. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. We've had another splendid lecture exploring those crucial properties which support conceptions of basic equality among humans. Thomas Hobbes, his notions of equal vulnerability, we're all capable of being killed or killing. Immanuel Kant, his emphasis on moral capacity to transcend self-interest, to, to sacrifice self for others or for principles, and, and John Rawls and his, his sense of justice. 
I think I'm, I'm perhaps most attracted to um, Colonel Rainborough <laughs> and his notions of human equality and all of us having a life to live. Okay, we now have some time for questions. We have a roving mic. If you could, uh, and I see a couple of hands. Uh, one up here in the front, please. One might have thought it obvious that the, <clears throat> the test for the basis we use in practice, the property we appeal to in practice, is simply the fact of being a human being. So in practice, uh, if somebody, when we hear the example of somebody with disabilities, might they be excluded? We take it in practice to be quite obvious that they mustn't be excluded. And everything the philosophers offers, offer us, for example, Rawls's range properties, we judge it by whether it gets all human beings in. So in practice, that seems to be the test that we all take for granted. Might one say then, one's got to be able to show that that test, that property, manifestly won't do in some way if we have to, if we're going to go in for this search for some other property. Mightn't we say the philosophers are all off beam? The, the relevant property is staring us in the face. It's being a human being. Yeah. That's the basis. Yeah. Now, there's, there's two things that we want the specification of the property to do. We want it to help us apply the principle of human equality, and we want it to help us explicate the principle of basic equality. And as to the first, that seems fine. We know how to distinguish a human from a non-human. We know how to apply the principle, therefore, in virtue of that. It's the explication of explaining what it is about humans, or why humans. Is it just a matter of solidarity? Is it just a matter of speciesism akin to racism? After all, somebody could say, Hastings Rashtow might have said, we all know how to spot a white man when we see it. Of course, there are marginal cases. We all know how to spot a white man when we can see it. And we would say, well, yeah, but you haven't given a satisfactory explanation of what it is. So um, I want to agree with you and disagree with you. I do want to say that, of course, it is natural to take that approach. And of course, we will, many of us, will use that as a test. There are an increasing number of people, not just philosophers, who won't countenance that as a test. Because they will say, um, if non-human animals are to be excluded, there has to be a reason and the fact that they're non-human, that might be the demarcation, but that can't be a reason. It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't make sense of the... So um, what you do when you're a philosopher, you're always pushing down into issues of what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Um, so I guess that's what I'm trying to do here. And it's going to turn out, I believe, importantly, that the issue about the profoundly disabled human beings will have to be dealt with in, in extremely interesting and complicated ways that actually helps illuminate the whole problem. That's partly why I'm, I'm postponing it to, to lecture six. But if you at least, if we can at least agree on this difference between knowing how to work with a principle and knowing how to explicate or make sense of the principle, then it's the second task that I'm taking on myself. We have a question way up in the front. Thank you again. I come back to an emphasis that you started with on Monday, 
uh, where you used the term, I think, fragility of yes. notions of equality. And with respect to the previous comment, I guess I would have to ask who is the we who finds that so obvious? Because down through human history, it seems to me that that has not been the default view of human beings. That is, <coughs> people have characteristically uh, not treated all other members of the human race as entitled to the same moral regard as they would wish for themselves. Yes. Um, and it seems to me that the we who think otherwise, who think that a moral obligation is owed to all humans, are relatively late, <laughs> relatively small, and to use your term, relatively fragile, not consensus, but cabal, perhaps. Yes. So, uh, you know, when, when we have notions of caste and race and gender, all of which have, have not only rationed but have been used down through the centuries to justify differential moral responsibility, the question I guess I would want to ask is, however we define yeah. some sort of basis for uh, species-wide, at least, moral responsibility and moral regard, what kind of, or are you going to address this later, <laughs> what sort of argument would one use, in fact, to persuade somebody other than the we who may be gathered in this room to embrace such a view? Right, right. Um, the position is going to remain fragile in this sense, uh, however well-reasoned. Um, it is. It's a philosopher's fallacy to think that if somehow you can get the arguments lined up, then the position will become robust and tanks will not be able to roll over it. Yeah? Um, in that sense, there's no getting away from the uh, fragility. The, the sense of explication that I wanted to refer to, the sense of trying to make sense of this position that a few of us or many of us hold, is not quite the same as our ability to um, proselytize the position. It may well be that making sense of it for ourselves with our particular um, uh, sensibility may leave it still impossible to convince the Rashtals of the world or the Aristotles of the world or the racists or the sexists of the world to take it seriously. But at least we will have had some confidence that we can explain it to ourselves and that's the first burden. I'm not sure that I'm going to give anybody a recipe for winning an argument against Hastings Rashdale and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe this, that was one of the points that Margaret MacDonald was making uh, in, the first, in the first lecture. That there's, no, there's going to be no rational argument that compels these positions. But still we want to know what it is that we believe. And we want to know what makes sense of what it is that we believe. And um, I entirely take the point about this being a relative newcomer, in which case we have all the more reason to be interested in its anatomy. Um, so that's, that's really the, 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 the agenda. Uh, yes, is, is there a question back? Yeah. <coughs> Jeremy, is it, the, the emphasis on capacity seems a very much a, a double-edged sword. You said on, on Monday that uh, uh, one of the things which distinguished the human species was the, the gap between uh, what we did and what we were capable of. You know, that was something which was uh, very, very distinctive of the, of the human species. Now, interestingly, today, all your candidates uh, for equality are based upon a notion of capacity. And so this is a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because yeah. 
on the one hand, we're saying what distinguishes us is our uh, ability to do more than we normally do. But that's a strange way in which to, in a sense, to elevate human, human race, because what we're also saying is that, to some extent, we are uh, culpable of a failure which is not shared by other species. Yeah, yeah. Now that's very helpful, um, and it's a good challenge. Um, I didn't use that language of the gap between potential and realization today at all, although it's obviously there in what we say about reason, autonomy, moral sense, um, and so on. The, um, it's gonna be particularly important for what we say on Monday about this element of the, the double consciousness with which, we approach, with which we approach these matters. For as things stand, these range properties comprise within the range the presence of the property more or less entirely in potential rather than in actuality. And people are gonna have an intense interest in why and whether these should be brought on and how the criterion of human equality relates to that imperative to bring people on in the use of these, of these capacities. Neil, I don't want to simply say you've got to wait till Monday to hear the answer to this. I perfectly appreciate the challenge. It's, it's, it's a good one. Capacity can always be used in two ways. Um, I have the capacity to do philosophy. I didn't have it when I was 10, right? Uh, but at the age 10, I had the potential for the capacity to do philosophy, and somebody brought me on through the, through the, the, the years. So capacity can sometimes be used to refer to the kind of current capacity that I have here and now that I can exercise in a moment if I need to. And sometimes capacity can be a more potential notion having to do with something that um, if only I am given favorable conditions, it will come to the fore. So that factor, that, that ambiguity, I think, is, is part of what's going on, part of what's going on as well. With some of the things that are cited, like Arendt's natality, the whole thing is more or less potential all the way through. Right? And some of what I'm going to say about hu profound human disability on Thursday will place very great stress on the fact that these are human beings that in some sense possess the potential for this, only something is broken and that potential is never going to be realized, but we can't wish the potential away, and we mustn't pretend it doesn't exist in giving an accounting of where persons with profound disabilities stand in relation to the capacities of human equality. It doesn't mean I'm going to be trading on the ambiguity. I hope not. I don't think it's going to be equivocation. But capacity is a term that can be expanded or contracted in these ways. Uh, yes, in the back. <coughs> So thank you. Just to follow up about this capacity, which I assume is, is not static, is dynamic because also it can grow. And the question is whether it's actually innate and how about what kind of condition, because some people or some group of people can have the capacity diminishing. And to, like for instance, also people can make the capacity growing, flourishing in language, for instance, and also in the moral capacity if you have a good education you get a good feedback environment. But to other group of people who may be less exposed, you know, how you can going to measure about the 
proximity and the average, you know, expecting some group of people using the same uh, stick yard, you know, when actually the capacity is not something static. It's dynamic, depend on various factors. Yes. No, I appreciate that too. I think it's, it's very important. Um, do you remember that in maybe one or both of the last two lectures, I referred during question time to the fact that we have to attribute these capacities, these abilities, not just to time slices of a person's life, but to the whole life, understood as a trajectory from infancy to old age and death. And the attribution in that four-dimensional model is going to be a complicated matter. It will certainly be dynamic, so we're not simply talking about things being inherent in a certain way. On the other hand, when I talk about potentiality at that end of the capacity notion, I am going to assume that in the human being that has infrastructure, that there is an organic basis of the potentials that we are talking about. We are formed for speech, right? We are formed for certain forms of perception and cognition. And somebody who can't speak is a being formed for speech that can't speak. Somebody who uh, suffers profound cognitive disability is a being formed for cognition that can't know or understand. And so we have to pay attention, I think, to the significance. This is not a spiritually established potential. The potential is there, it's organic. Yeah? And you can't understand what's gone wrong in the life of this profoundly disabled person except by understanding that the organic basis of a certain potential has been lost. We have to be extremely careful with that position, and I will try to be very careful with it next Thursday. But I much appreciate the, the, the suggestion that this is um, a dynamic notion, not just a um, static idea. The other side to the question was to refer also to the question of innateness, or the social conditions under which the capacity blossoms and grows. Um, and if, there's, if there is a defect, if there's going to be a defect in the lectures, it will be that I don't say enough about the, the social modes of nurturing these capacities, although I wouldn't for a moment want to deny it. I do think that we are talking about something which is inherent and innate in its infrastructure. But it's thriving, it's flourishing, and the facts about a person's living that make it thrive and flourish if it does, are going to be very, very important social features and features of moral and ethical life uh, rather than just features of biology. <coughs> did, did you, uh, yes. Um, this is a comeback, actually, so apologies. I hope there's nobody else who's wanted to get in. Um, but just your responses to what I said before. First of all, the species is a worry. It seems to me it's a complicated worry, but it, it need to be so serious. I mean, if the basic thought is being a human being gets you in, that's what matters. Now, that leaves completely open who else might be in. There may be other creatures who get in as well. But it's one thing was clear about, if you're a human being, you're in. Now, just going over to your other point, I mean, trying to make sense of this, um, what features of 
our humanity is it that are crucial, um, what makes sense of the importance we attach to a human being, one might be inclined to say, well, being human is, for most of us, spontaneously, we might say, that in itself is as intelligible, indeed a lot more intelligible, than the kind of tests which the philosophers offer us. So um, Rawls's notion of a range concept, is that more intelligible as a ground for thinking that people deserve <clears throat> equal treatment than merely the base fact of being a human being? Yeah. Um, let, let, let me respond to both those points. The first point is perfectly well taken. And uh, after all, I've been distinguishing between a continuous approach and a distinctive approach to equality, and that's exactly the point that you made, and I accept it. Um, we still want to say, if somebody says it's being human that matters, we want to say matters how, matters why. Most of us actually don't walk around thinking, my God, I'm human and proud of it. Uh, most of us probably don't give a great deal of thought to our humanity at all. In our dealings with each other, we're dealing with judgments and reasonings and decisions and actions. And, um, you know, when we tell jokes or read biographies, it isn't a human comes into a bar, it's a man comes into a bar. We, we, we in fact, don't dwell always on our humanities, except in the very stark situation where nothing but humanity seems to be at stake and then we're up against Arendt's contention that the world has sometimes found that the mere fact that somebody is human is the weakest claim, not the strongest claim, that a person can make on the human jackals who confront him. Um, so um, for practical purposes, I wouldn't want to dissent for a moment from anything that you say. But for purposes of understanding, I think it's a legitimate question. How much, how complicated an apparatus are we going to need if we were, if we were to want to ask these embarrassing questions? Well, why does being human matter? Yeah? How does it matter? Matter to whom? Matter why? Matter to God? Matter to each other? And so on. Um, notoriously, probing Philosophical probing in this sense takes us from the intuitively satisfactory into the ramshackle concoction of, of, of reason. And, and you're quite right about that as well. But the suggestion I think that Rawls is making and making well is that you're not going to be able to get to the bottom of this preference for the human without something as difficult and as ramshackle as the range property idea. Yeah? And I'm going to give him his... his uh, his fill on that and see where it goes. Professor Waldron, thank you so much for your lecture and your responses to our questions. Let me remind the audience that Professor Waldron's fourth Gifford lecture will be held at 5.30 p.m. on Monday the 2nd of February, here in the Playfair Library. The title of that lecture will be A Load-Bearing Idea, The Work of Human Equality, and we look forward to it very much. Please join me again in thanking Professor Waldron for his lecture and for his generous responses to our questions.